the Biomass Thermal Energy Council's podcast series. I'm Joe Seymour, BTEC Program Coordinator for Policy and Governmental Affairs. In our monthly podcast, BTEC interviews key decision makers and pioneers of the biomass energy industry. This project is made possible by a grant from the U.S. Forest Service's Wood Education and Resource Center. In our fourth broadcast, we discuss biomass energy project development and the critical steps from the field through combustion. A combination of state and federal incentives, mandates, and private sector investment is driving development of renewable energy projects nationwide. Yet, as we will learn from our guest, there is more that separates successful projects from the duds than money. Joining us is John Eusterman, a partner with Stoll Reeves located in the Boise, Idaho office. Stoll Reeves is a full-service law firm with roughly 400 attorneys nationwide, and John is the leader of the company's biomass group. My practice is project development and project finance. You know, I started out doing a lot of the, the biorefinery stuff, you know, in about 2000, 2001, and then a uh, portion of that um, sort of slowed down, as you can imagine, not only with the macroeconomic issues and the debt markets, but just the overall food versus fuel and kind of the implication that had on, on issues associated with corn and, 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 you know, how that's being used for, for ethanol. But um, while that, you know, prior to that downturn, I, I focused a lot on biomass. And so right now, you know, I, I do project development, project finance in the biomass space, um, ranging from you know, multiple different feedstocks, um, you know, agriculture could be, you know, manure, stover, you know, spoilage or composted mortality and things like that, or, um, you know, even on, on processing of, of, of ag byproducts such as syrup stillage and things like that. And then on, on the wood waste uh, and, and municipal solid waste, it could be, you know, um, leaves, grass clippings, all the way down to, um, you know, fiber out of the woodshed to, you know, stuff out of the landfill. So that's what I do. Um, I'm the national practice. Um, I've got clients that are in Florida, Georgia, um, down in uh, in uh, Mississippi, clients in uh, Wisconsin. I mean, I'm just thinking of current deals right now, Wisconsin, upstate New York. Um, let's see, uh, Baltimore, Maryland area, all the way to California, Washington, Oregon. I have a couple projects in Idaho. Um, yeah, so it, uh, ranges, you get, kind of get the, I think it, I think when I was just doing biorefineries, I think I represented at, at any stage of development, some 28 biofuel plants in 22 states. So, you know, and again, some of those were successfully developed. Some of them were early stage that didn't quite get off the ground. Some of them flipped mid, mid development, but yeah, I'm not, not, not just Idaho. Now, John, biomass energy project development, or just even renewable energy project development overall, is a phrase that sounds simple, but in reality can be quite complex. From your perspective, what are the major steps a developer should consider before he or she commences on a project? Or or rather, uh, what are those issues that must be tackled first, and what should be considered last? Well, I think one of the first things that you want to do when you're developing a project, you know, to the extent there's a sequence, um, there's a lot of overlapping issues that you deal with, but... You know, it's one of those things where this is where Microsoft uh, works or some sort of product development software comes in handy so you can lay out a Gantt chart and see that there are a number of things that you need to do simultaneously. But all that being said, I think one of the first things anybody looking to develop a project can do or one of the wisest things they ought to do early on is educate the local community where you've decided you're going to site the plant. Now, siting a plant and deciding where to site it carries with it you know, some prior work with respect to feasibility studies and, and things like that because these 
these plants are local, right? You can't site a plant miles and miles away from your feedstock because then logistics will strain. Uh, it'll it'll strain the the, uh, the sort of your performance. So you want they're relatively local, and that being the case, you need to spend a lot of time up front educating the respective you know local communities and educating the stakeholders in that area. You know the city council and the county. You know the, those people that are that are decision makers at the county level about what it is you're going to do, so that you have mass, matched expectations right out of the gate. You don't want to ambush um, local folks with information that, that they don't expect. And when you do that, that always causes heartburn and can result in people coming out of the woodwork and you know filing lawsuits or just making um, bringing a project online uh, more difficult. So I think it's educating the local populace and getting their feedback and you know giving them some buy-in in the project. Because at the end of the day, if you get a project up and running, everybody's got to like it. If, 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 a, if a large people, a large portion of the community don't like it, then it's going to be hard to get an offtake agreement with the respective utility because those people are the rate payers for that utility. And so, you know, you want to get buy-in up front. And then after that, you know, it's a matter of assuming that you've done sort of, you know, your feedstock uh, feasibility and you realize that there's enough feedstock uh, in that area, then it's, you know, securing a site, identifying a site, evaluating it, and selecting a site. And and that may require that you look at a number of sites. You may enter, enter into a number of sort of access agreements where you can do the appropriate, you know, run to ground all the traps necessary to make sure that a site fits your needs. The level, are there permitting issues, zoning issues, you know, access to road, rail, things like that. You know, are there, is it endangered species issues or certain waterways? And so assuming that you find the site, then, you know, the next thing is, is okay, let's now talk about how we secure some upstream fuel supply. And while you talk about getting fuel supply, you also want to then at the same time start engaging with an off-taker, whether it's going to be biogas off-taker or, or a local utility, or if you're co-locating next to a, you know, a large uh, food processing plant, you know, are they going to take a certain parasitic load? And then you're going to have some other uh, power that's going to be sold to the grid. So either way, you want to start thinking of your offtake because um, it's your feedstock and your offtake are the key elements that that are going to drive financing of a project. And then, um, you know, if if you've got the feedstock secured and you've got sort of if you're going to generate power, right? You want to talk to the utility. If you're going to generate gas, again, you may want to talk to the utility or another counterparty on a on a biogas offtake situation. Also, are there going to be other co-products that you're going to generate? For example, in anaerobic digestion, you may generate, uh, you know, you have a liquid effluent which comes on the back end of the, of the process. What are you going to do with that liquid effluent? Is that going to go for a land application uh, with a local, you know, farmer? Or if you're co-locating next to a dairy, are they going to apply it to, to the land? Is there going to be some fiber coming out of that effluent that you're going to sell back to the dairy for either bedding or you're going to use it and do another processing step and turn it into some fertilizer and sell it, you know, as an organic fertilizer just in the open market. You know, so you want to think about what other co-products and revenue streams you can generate from your process. Um, another thing you want to think about also is the design. What kind of process or technology am I going to deploy? And so you want to do a good bit of due diligence relative to the feedstock and the quality of the feedstock that you're getting. You want to look at the conversion technology and find out what players are out there and what technologies work, what technologies are getting financed. Uh, and also while you're talking to those technology providers, you want to start to examine 
what EPC contractors are out there. And an EPC contract is an engineering, procurement, and construction contractor who's out there that can provide you with a good contract, build this project, give you a wrap, in other words, a performance wrap or a performance guarantee, in other words, wrap the project and, and represent that there are certain performances that this project is going to hit, and they'll guarantee the technology performance, they'll guarantee that the project once built performs you know, pursuant to certain specs and as expected. And so you want to think about what uh, what EPC contractors are out there, interview them, talk to them, get their familiarity with the process, and make sure that they're bankable. Every one of these counterparties you want to be, quote, bankable, or at least you want them to have a certain level of creditworthiness so that there's not a weak link in the chain. And all the while, when you're putting these documents and agreements together, you want to make sure that you de-risk the project-level entity. In other words, you know, if there's a risk coming down onto the project, such as, let's say, maybe there's a price escalator in the feedstock, you know, how do I, or how do I allocate or address that, that, that risk? In other words, if a price escalation is coming down, in other words, there may be a biodiesel escalator for the biodiesel gas to get the feedstock to the plant, is there any way I can disperse that escalator, that price change, to maybe my off-taker or someone else so that it doesn't just rest on the project-level entity and then and squeeze the margins? So there's just kind of those things. Uh, also, if you're doing electricity, you want to think about it, what interconnect agreement and who your off-taker is for the power. And, and it may or may not be the same entity that you need to negotiate an interconnection agreement with. So you want to start to think about that. If it's a woody biomass play and you've got some ash disposal issues, you might want to talk to a local municipality or a landfill regarding how you can dispose your ash. And then, um, you know, there's also who's going to operate this facility once it's up and running. Are you qualified? Are you bankable as the sponsor? Or do you bring in some key, uh, you know, uh, key individual or company or create another company with key talents and talent and skills and, and enter into an operations and maintenance agreement as between that entity and the project level entity. Um, I mean, it just depends on the technology you're deploying. You may have a process steam supply and condensate return agreement. You may have a wastewater disposal agreement. You may have a water supply agreement. All of those things need to be looked at so that you've got in place all the necessary documents and required utilities and needs so that once you're up and running, you know, you, you can fulfill you know, whatever the respective needs are for that facility so that it runs uh, appropriately. John, I want to tail back on your mention of the importance of offtake agreements from the energy produced at these facilities. Many BTEC members sell fuel to facilities that produce useful thermal energy, and one of the policies we're pursuing is incentives for renewably produced heat. Can you talk a little more about an offtake agreement for thermal applications? Yeah, and, and you know, it depends on, on, you know, what are you going to do with that heat capture? I mean, generally you can have a heat exchanger on one of these deals, and, what, you know, where's that going to go? And, and, you know, the heat can come in the form of, you know, steam as well. So, uh, you know, you just want to think about that. Sometimes, depending on where it's located, you'll find if it's an anaerobic deal that some of that heat that you're generating off a heat exchanger, you may want to pipe back to the front end of the process so that, depending on how cold it is, it keeps – you know, any of the, of the manure and the moisture in the feedstock um, fluid, you know, so you may end up 
finding that you're heating the manure before it gets into your system or whatever whatever your feedstock is. Heat's a big deal, and how do you use that uh, appropriately to optimize your facility and or and you can optimize it both operationally but financially. What do I do with that? Is there an off-taker for that? Moving on to securing capital for a project. Financing is obviously vital to the success of a biomass energy project, and given the economic downturn in late 2008 through 2010, is an item that cannot be ignored or rushed. What should a project developer do to make a project financeable and attractive to investors? What can be done to de-risk a project? Well, I mean, a couple of things that, that you, you kind of want to think about. For example, I mean, let's just use the EPC contract, for example. You know, I want already, when you're looking at converting waste or biomass to, to energy or biofuel, I mean, that's kind of, you know, it's kind of new technology here in the States. You know, it might not be particularly new in, 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 in Europe. You know, and if you're dealing with municipal solid waste and things like that, you know, it carries with it sort of a lot of nuances and, you know, what kind of, what kind of discharges are going to be, both air, water, things like that. And so, um, you know, there's, there's these layers of risk that, that are involved in, in any one of these developments. There's environmental risk. There's financial risk. You know, are we going to be able to actually – finance the deal. There's technology risk. Is the technology going to perform like we said it's going to perform? Is there um, governmental risk? You know, what's going to happen? You know, are we going to get hit with, um, you know, with um, with new regs that apply to, to the boilers or that apply to the respective technology? You know, uh, and then also um, there's just overall operational risk. Do we have a, Do we have the right people running the thing? And then construction risk. So there's six or seven different kind of components relative to risk. And, you know, it's always good to get an entity in there that, that knows how to build them, right? And, and so at every step, you know, let's say there's feedstock risk. Do we have enough feedstock, you know, in, to, to kind of mitigate some of that risk? Then you want to get an independent engineer to, to do a solid upstream feedstock supply assessment, you know, if you're going to have a lot of, um, if you're going to, a good bit of your of your revenue is going to come from, let's say, a, you know, the the production of some form of fiber-based or organic-based uh, fertilizer, then you're going to want to have an independent engineer that knows the organic fertilizer space, look and do, you know, an analysis on on the offtake for the fertilizer. And each one of these, each one of these sort of feasibility studies and analyses reports, all get not only do they help you get a handle on what is the level of risk, but they carry with them ways, you know, just by virtue of knowing more about it, how to, uh, you know, deal with that risk. And an EPC contract is a place that solves a good number of these problems. I mean, when you're negotiating an EPC contract, and there's a number of different forms, it's a, you know, engineering procurement and construction sort of suggests that I'm going to a party and they're doing an all-in turnkey deal. Right, and but that term's been overused a bit lately, and so you'll find that, you know, it may be a deal where I I've got the engineering done by another party, and I just go to the contractor and have them, um, you know, procure the long lead time equipment and construct it. But you know, at any at any at any point, it seems to me that the EPC contract is the right place to really start to allocate some of these risks. And so, you know, for example, let's say I've got technology risk in it. Well, a way to eliminate some technology risk is to have an EPC contract that says, you know what, I'm going to assume that risk. I will, based on certain performance criteria, I will stand behind that technology. I will, it will hit nameplate capacity with these specs, and I'll give you a one-year warranty on it. And so that, with a, with a nice 
financially sound EPC contract goes a long way to eliminate some technology risk. Also, if it's a quality EPC contract that's been down this path before, well, that eliminates a good bit of the construction risk, right? And so from a governmental perspective, tough to kind of eliminate regulatory risk. It just kind of is what it is. Um, you, can, you can eliminate a good bit of it by surpassing any sort of, any sort of discharge requirements, making sure that you've got the requisite um, you know, environmental mitigating factors involved, you know, bag house or what have you, and sort of overbuild um, you know, your environmental protections on your project. Um, and so you know, those are areas where you know, an EPC contract is a good place to capture that. You can negotiate away a bit of the risks associated with the pricing on the fuel supply, Maybe you graduate it with whoever your respective supplier is. You know, maybe you can adjust the terms so that so that you know you'll be subject to a biofuel um, escalator only for the first four or five years, or you'll only be subject to a biofuel escalator to the extent that the fuel supply is coming, you know, from that supplier outside of a 30-mile uh, drivable range from the facility, and and you can eliminate some of it by you know, getting redundancy in your fuel supply. You know, if one party will supply the fuel uh, up to a certain point, you've got another party uh, lined up that will supply the difference should things go awry. And those are ways to, you know, sort of mitigate some of the risks. John, that's, uh, that's quite a bit to consider. What aspect shouldn't be overlooked? You know, I think what people need to do is, is focus more on the logistics. How do I get stuff to my facility? And and the offtake side, negotiating the offtake side. I think people need to focus more on that than they do on the conversion technology. You know, I think it's hard to get financed if you're going to get too exotic. You know, there's conversion technologies out there. That's not generally what breaks the model. What breaks the model is not planning in advance. All the other sort of issues regarding operating the plant, getting your fuel supply there, storing your fuel supply, controlling the moisture, moisture content, meeting specs, getting solid offtake agreements for a length of time that covers your financing and for a, getting good feedstock supply agreements for a length of time that match up with your offtake agreements so that everything in there, all those contractual assets jive, if you will, into the model. 2009 and 2010 saw massive federal investments in renewable energy projects through the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. These funds are meant to leverage private sector investment and encourage project development that wouldn't have occurred otherwise or would have occurred much later. How should a project developer incorporate these programs, grants, and tax credits into his or her biomass energy project? I generally tell people, look, you know, you're, it's got to pencil on its own. I don't care what you're doing. At the end of the day, you need to make more money than you spend. So... If you've got a model, a budget, and you've baked in there all kinds of different layers with incentives and this and that, I think that, that that's going to go to credit committee of the respective lender or prospective lender, and that's going to get stripped out or it's going to get discounted because nobody knows is it going to be there next year or is it not. We saw a lot of activity at the end of last year relative to what's called the 1603 grant in lieu. Right. You know, people right. were racing to the finish line to try to get projects done. And it's unfortunate. It would have been nice to have known, you know, that, that, that it would be extended. It's great that it was, but it would have been nice to have known because a lot of those folks racing to the finish line created, you know, almost a frenzy. And, and, and when you saw projects like that, you kind of thought, geez, are these people organized or not? 
Well, yeah, they were organized, but they just ran out of time, you know, and, it, and they ran out of time not because it's anything they could have controlled. Who would have known, right? So I think that, that some certainty in whether or not there's an incentive is necessary, and the best way to get certainty is to not count on an incentive. And so I tell people, strip out your out of all the incentives as much as you can out of your pro forma. Or run sensitivity analysis to the you know, 90, 80, 70, 60, 50% chance of having that incentive by the time you break ground, having that incentive for however long afterwards, so that, so that it's a realistic model. You know? If you just got a bunch of incentives in there and you say, oh, look, you know, we've, we can afford it, you know, a banker can look at that and say, well, I don't know much about that incentive, or I don't know if that incentive is going to be there. So eliminate it from the table and make your model work absent the incentive. Biomass energy facilities have to take into account long-term feedstock supplies because, obviously, a project won't get off the ground if a plant, expected to operate 30 years, only has 15 years worth of fuel. John, what can be done to limit the risk in the feedstock? There are a number of folks out there talking about what's called a fuel supply wrap, and you see it more in the woody biomass space than anything, and I think that for all intents and purposes, it's some form of a, and I, I don't want to use this term, but it's, quote, an insurance policy, if you will, in terms of insuring or guaranteeing that there will be the, the requisite supply of, of fuel for your project. Now, you're going to pay a price for that, but, and I don't know what the going rate is. It may be an extra 250 to $3 per dry ton uh, delivered of whatever that woody supply is, just for for sake of example. And at first, that's a you know that's a significant uh, change. But but if you can get it financed, then that price point works, right? I mean, if you can't get it financed, you don't have a project. But if you can get it financed, financing uh, and it pencils with that in there, and you can get it financed, then that's Probably uh, uh, that fuel supply wrap is, or, or guarantee, if you will, is probably a, um, a uh, you know an instrument worth deploying on your project. On the topic of feedstocks, price, and supply stability, distance, specifically transport distance, is an issue. Biomass is a commodity with a traditionally slim margin, and given the lower energy density of biomass compared to fossil fuels, the further the transport from harvest to use, the lower the profit. I've heard that as a rule of thumb, feedstocks should be sourced within a 50-mile radius. John, is that accurate? Well, there's a couple of things. I always assume that there's someone on the other side of the wall putting a pin in the same map. So if you're looking at a map and you're putting in a, you know, a pin and you're kind of making your, your circle around it, you've got you to think there's 10 other circles that are going to intersect with your circle. And so you need to kind of ask yourself, okay, you know, how does that affect my fuel supply? You know, is that 50-mile circle, uh, circle that I'm drawing, is that even useful? Because it's, it's not just 50 miles as the crow flies. It's got to be 50 miles of accessible roadway and delivery, you know, transport vehicles to get it to your site. So you can imagine that if it's, if it's a 50-mile up a logging road, that's a different story than 50 miles in a freeway, you know, at many levels, right? Um, also, if you're talking woody biomass, you know, what, what does that say about, new plots of land out there that your supply, your fuel supplier has yet to harvest and what's the cost component to get them to harvest and take down another section of land that they have yet to harvest. I mean, there's a cost associated with that too, not only from a permitting side, but also just extends transportation. So there are a number of uh, different escalators that you need to be aware of. 
when you're dealing with that. But I think it's, you know, this is why I suggest to people to make sure that you get, uh, you know, an upstream fuel supply study done. You're going to need it for financing purposes. Anyway, I, I just think the point is, is be conservative in your figures. You know, if you think you've got access to that fuel supply, examine it closely. John, earlier in our conversation, you mentioned the importance of consultation with the project localities, community, and stakeholders. Strictly speaking, a business, should it have the appropriate permits and other paperwork, may not need the approval of a community to proceed. It's a business decision. Now, I know that's an oversimplification, and so I ask, why should a project developer first reach out to the community, and what does that look like? Never underestimate the value that someone may have. I mean, they are local, and so you know, everybody. You're never going to see everybody's cards, but you just you've you've got to kind of go at it from an open perspective and say, look, here's the information that we have, and you know, have meetings early and often where you invite folks from the requisite you know chamber of commerce and the and the city council and the county council, and you know, if you're in, you know, if you can get someone from the state's department of commerce or or from the you know the respective mayor's budgetary committee, and if your state's got sort of a, a grassroots group already looking to get into renewable energy, or you know if it's a dairy issue, get in with the Dairymen's Association, or get in with the you know Association of Pulp and Paper Workers, or whoever it is, and and the respective landfill and who's managing the landfill, who is involved in in or may have an interest, either positive, negative, they may be a friend or foe, but find out who they are and work with them. John, opposition from community members and groups, whether warranted or not, can and have slowed or stopped biomass energy projects altogether. Why should opposing groups be brought into the process? There's a couple of reasons why. Even if they're against your project, get to know them, because you're going to find out what areas are, are pain points for them, and you may be able to work through some of those. And you may not be able to work through some of those, but you know I think it's always good to to know who's on your team and who's not. Um, but I think early on, you know, particularly all you know with the respective city, state, you know, or federal, you know, the local Department of Environmental Quality and who's the local rep, the EPA, and who's at the you know Farm Services Association of that state to find out, you know, if there are BCAP issues. And chances are someone has been down the path before and maybe their project didn't get up for some reason. You're going to want to know what were some of the issues. That'll have to be the last word. Thank you for sharing your perspectives on project finance and development, as well as helping BTEC complete its commitments under the work grant. Really, I appreciate your time today. Further information on Stoll Reeves can be found at www.stoll.com. More resources, including interviews and archived webinars in the biomass industry, are available on the BTEC website at www.biomassthermal.org. Thank you so much for listening.